Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. We have a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Uh, as a spoiler ahead of time, we will not have a Law 140 as I'd originally promised. We're going to do one on the constitutionality of mandatory minimums. I was hoping it was going to be this week, but then shit just kept happening. We have, let's see, 26 pages of show notes just of police brutality shit and criminal justice news. Uh, no politics, no Law 140 notes. Um, so we're going to have to cut the Law 140 out for this week because otherwise we're going to be talking forever. Uh, and I'm a little bit behind getting into the studio because a portion of my Sunday afternoon uh, was dealing with maggots on or MAGA. It's however you want to pronounce it. Uh, Trumpists and we're defenders of Ben Shapiro, who allegedly Ben is, you know, not a Trumpist, but his defenders certainly are. Uh, so if you get bored and you want to enjoy the political discussion, go over to my uh, my Twitter feed. But beyond that, skipping politics this week, not going to talk about it at all so we can dive right into the news. Uh, before we do that, though, if you have not already, please join the conversation online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. It's at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you want to leave us a comment, you can do it on our website, Fiskamall.com. And it's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our financial supporters, you can do so at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. That is how we uh, we pay Mike the sound guy. We cover the hosting. We pay the domain, which I had to renew today because I had actually forgotten about it. Tomorrow, well, it's going to be two days from the day that we're recording. The day after you get this, Tuesday, May 1st, uh, is going to be the one-year anniversary of the podcast. So I had to renew the URL. Totally forgot. Was trying to log in today to uh, work on the WordPress stuff before I got here and couldn't figure out why I wouldn't load and realized that the domain actually expired a couple days ago. Thankfully, I got it back before uh, it got to the point where I couldn't get it anymore. Uh, but that's how we pay the domain hosting and everything else. So we would love to have your support on Patreon. Uh, once we get to 150 patrons, I'm going to start doing these twice a week. And right now we're at 100 and change. I think we're at 103, if I remember correctly. So we're more than two-thirds of the way there. Uh, all right, so let's get into the criminal justice news. We're going to start with some court news that's actually a little bit late. This happened last week, uh, or a week before last, rather, and I missed it because we didn't have room to fit it in, uh, but I wanted to highlight it anyway, because I've gotten some flack from some of y'all about my support for Justice Gorsuch. I said that he was a good pick. He was one, the, the one unalloyed good thing that our beloved Papaya Potus Donald Trump has done so far, and there hasn't been that many decisions where I could highlight the fact that he was a great choice. Well, one came out just this uh, couple weeks ago, where a five to four decision of the court struck down part of the Immigration and Nationality Act. I'm going to give you some information about that opinion so you have the context, but then I'm going to read you extended snippets of Justice Gorsuch's concurrence because it was awesome. 
It was just fantastically awesome. Uh, so from the story in Reason magazine, it says, quote, Today the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a provision of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which dealt with the power of the U.S. government to deport any alien, including a lawful permanent resident, convicted of a, quote, aggravated felony. The 5-4 to four ruling was written by Justice Elena Kagan and joined by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. Justice Gorsuch concurred in part and joined in the judgment, providing the tie-breaking fifth vote. At issue, in the case Sessions v. DeMeo, is a provision of the INA which lists being convicted of a crime of violence as one of the types of aggravated felony convictions that can trigger an alien's deportation. This provision defines a crime of violence to include any offense that, quote, is a felony and that, by its nature, involves a substantial risk that physical force against the person or property of another may be used in the course of committing the offense. So basically, the court struck it down as being unduly vague. We've talked before about what is called the void for vagueness doctrine in past law 140s. Well, the uh, the main justices and the justices in the dissent are fighting over whether or not this is adequately vague. And in the dissent written by Justice Thomas, he writes at length that the void for vagueness doctrine uh, is not something found in the Constitution. That is essentially the thesis of the dissent. And Gorsuch isn't having any of it. So he writes at length, and I'm going to give you these long snippets. I apologize in advance. I will link to you the actual opinion so you can see the whole thing. Uh, but the snippets are just fantastic. So he starts off uh, getting straight to the point. It says, quote, these are the very first lines in the concurrence. Quote, vague laws invite arbitrary power. Before the revolution, the crime of treason in English law was so capaciously construed that the mere expression of disfavored opinions could invite transportation or death. The founders cited the crown's abuse of pretended crimes like this as one of their reasons for revolution. See the Declaration of Independence, paragraph 21. Today's vague laws may not be as invidious, but they can invite the exercise of arbitrary power all the same by leaving the people in the dark about what the law demands and allowing prosecutors and courts to make it up. The law before us today is such a law. Before holding a lawful permanent resident alien like James DeMeya subject to removal for having committed a crime, the INA requires a judge to determine that the ordinary case of the alien's crime of conviction involves a substantial risk that physical force may be used. But what does that mean? Just take the crime at issue in this case, California burglary, which applies to everyone from armed home intruders to door-to-door -door salesmen peddling shady products. How, on that vast spectrum, is anyone supposed to locate the ordinary case and say whether it includes a substantial risk of physical force? The truth is, no one knows. The law's silence leaves judges to their intuitions and the people to their fate. In my judgment, the Constitution demands more. He then goes into this lengthy review about the history of the void for vagueness doctrine, going all the way back to British common law, talks about due process, talks about the requirement of getting fair notice as part of due process. We've talked about that before as well. Uh, and he continues, quote, What history suggests the structure of the Constitution confirms. Many of the Constitution's other provisions presuppose and depend on the existence of reasonably clear laws. Take the Fourth Amendment's requirement that arrest warrants must be supported by probable cause and consider what would be left of that requirement if the alleged crime had no meaningful boundaries. 
or take the Sixth Amendment's mandate that a defendant must be informed of the accusations against him and allowed to bring witnesses in his defense, and consider what use those rights would be if the charged crime was so vague the defendant couldn't tell what he's alleged to have done and what sort of witnesses he might need to rebut that charge. Without an assurance that the laws supply fair notice, so much else of the Constitution risks becoming only a parchment barrier against arbitrary power. Although today's vagueness doctrine owes much to the guarantee of fair notice embodied in the Due Process Clause, it would be a mistake to overlook the doctrine's equal debt to the separation of powers. The Constitution assigns all legislative powers in our federal government to Congress. It is for the people, through their elected representatives, to choose the rules that will govern their future conduct. Meanwhile, the Constitution assigns to judges the judicial power to decide cases and controversies. That power does not license judges to craft new laws to govern future conduct, but only to discern the course prescribed by law as it currently exists, and to follow it in resolving disputes between the people over past events. From this division of duties, it comes clear that legislators may not abdicate their responsibilities for setting the standards of the criminal law by leaving to judges the power to decide the various crimes includable in a vague phrase. For if the legislature could set a net large enough to catch all possible offenders and then leave it to the courts to step inside and say who could be rightfully detained and who should be set at large, this would to some extent substitute the judicial for the legislative department of government. Nor is the worry only that vague laws risk allowing judges to assume legislative power. Vague laws also threaten to transfer legislative power to police and to prosecutors, leaving to them the job of shaping a vague statute's contours through their enforcement decisions. He then goes on saying, quote, What degree of imprecision should this court tolerate in a statute before declaring it unconstitutionally vague? For its part, the government argues that where, as here, a person faces only civil, not criminal consequences from a statute's operation, we should declare the law unconstitutional only if it is unintelligible. But in the criminal context, this court has generally insisted that the law must afford ordinary people fair notice of the conduct it punishes, and I cannot see how the due process clause might often require any less than that in the civil context either. In fact, if the severity of the consequences counts when deciding the standard of review, shouldn't we also take account of the fact that today's civil laws regularly impose penalties far more severe than those found in many criminal statutes? Ours is a world filled with more and more civil laws bearing more and more extravagant punishments. Today's civil penalties include confiscatory rather than compensatory fines, forfeiture provisions that allow homes to be taken, remedies that strip persons of their professional licenses and livelihoods, and the power to commit persons against their will indefinitely. Some of these penalties are routinely imposed and are routinely graver than those associated with misdemeanor crimes, and often harsher than the punishment for felonies. And not only are punitive civil sanctions rapidly expanding, they are sometimes more severely punitive than the parallel criminal sanctions for the exact same conduct. Given all this, any suggestion that criminal cases warrant a heightened standard of review does more to persuade me that the criminal standard should be set above our precedent's current threshold than to suggest the civil standard should be buried below it. There is a lot more in that concurrence. It is so incredibly fantastic. Uh, I encourage you to read it. 
read the whole thing. It's great. I realize some of you still are not going to like Gorsuch, but that is just, that's the type of stuff that I rant and rave about on this podcast and in my day job, and it's fabulous. So we'll give you the link. Uh, Out of the 11th Circuit, this is a really weird case. So a guy who makes his living as a recycler of electronic waste, e-waste, he's going to end up spending 15 months in prison for copyright infringement. So we're going to give you the opinion in the show notes because it's lengthy. It's a little obtuse. um, But essentially, I'm going to read you some excerpts from the Washington Post story to give you an idea about what it's about. Uh, The story says, quote, a California man who built a sizable business out of recycling electronic waste is headed to federal prison for 15 months after a federal appeals court in Miami rejected his claim that the restore discs he made to extend the lives of old computers had no financial value, instead ruling that he had infringed Microsoft's products to the tune of $700,000. The appeals court upheld a federal district judge's rulings that the disks made by Eric Lundgren to restore Microsoft operating systems had a value of $25 each, even though they could be downloaded for free and could be used only on computers with a valid Microsoft license. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit initially granted Lundgren an emergency stay of his prison sentence shortly before he was to surrender, but then affirmed his original 15-month sentence and $50,000 fine without hearing oral argument and a ruling issued April 11th. Lundgren, 33, has become a renowned innovator in the field of e-waste, using discarded parts to construct things such as an electric car. He built the first electronic hybrid recycling facility in the United States, which turns discarded cell phones and other electronics into functional devices, slowing the stream of harmful chemicals and metals into landfills and the environment. His California-based company processes more than 41 million pounds of e-waste each year and counts IBM, Motorola, and Sprint among its clients. Subquote, this is a difficult sentencing, senior U.S. District Judge Daniel Hurley told him last year, because I credit everything you are telling me, you are a very remarkable person. Lundgren had 28,000 of the discs made and shipped to a broker in Florida. Their plan was to sell the discs to computer refurbishing shops for about 25 cents a piece, so the refurbishers could provide the discs to used computer buyers and wouldn't have to take the time to create the disks themselves. In turn, the new users might be able to use the disks to keep their computers going the next time a problem occurred. Now again, remember from the story, this stuff was downloadable for free and could only be used on something with a valid Microsoft license. It just happened to take time. So Lundgren took the time out of that. Uh, But Microsoft argued that Lundgren's assertions don't apply to computers that go to refurbishers. While the license does transfer if a computer changes hands among individuals, commercial resellers like refurbishers must buy new licenses for $25 each, according to Microsoft. That becomes the basis for the tremendous dollar amount of damages for the copyright claim. The whole damn thing is stupid. So it's stupid on the one hand that that is how the law is structured that you're essentially taking computers that would otherwise be discarded for which a restore disk can be downloaded for free. Uh, And we're now saying that these free things that people are getting now magically cost $25 each. Uh, But then on top of that, you got to wonder, how did this all come in front of the government in the first place? What federal agent decided that it was appropriate to pay attention to this and this is what he gets arrested for? when there are so many other things that should be occupying the federal government's time. 
the whole thing is stupid. So we'll give you the 11th Circuit uh, opinion for you to read as you see fit. In general research news, the Los Angeles Times has done an analysis of immigrations and customs enforcement, uh, showing they routinely arrest Americans and leave some of them in prison for years at a time. Uh, from their expose, it says, quote, immigration officers in the United States operate under a cardinal rule. Keep your hands off Americans. I'm putting in brackets LOL because that doesn't actually happen. Uh, but immigration and customs enforcement agents repeatedly target U.S. citizens for deportation by mistake. I'm putting that in air quotes, making wrongful arrests based on incomplete government records, bad data and lax investigations, according to a Times review of federal lawsuits, internal ICE documents and interviews since 2012. ICE has released from its custody more than 1,480 people after investigating their citizenship claims, and a Times review of DOJ records and interviews with immigration attorneys uncovered hundreds of additional cases in the country's immigration courts in which people were forced to prove they are Americans and sometimes spent months or even years in detention. Victims include a landscaper snatched in a Home Depot parking lot in Rialto and held for days despite his son's attempts to show agents the man's U.S. passport. A New York resident locked up for more than three years fighting deportation efforts after a federal agent mistook his father for someone who wasn't a U.S. citizen. A Rhode Island housekeeper mistakenly targeted twice, resulting in her spending a night in prison the second time, even though her husband had brought her U.S. passport to a court hearing. And it goes on and on and on from there. And this is part of my problem with big government. Now, a lot of people will ask me, why is it that I'm a conservative? We've covered that in prior podcasts. But a big piece of it is that everything the government does, it has a natural and unavoidable tendency to do poorly. And part of that is just kind of the law of big numbers. So if you consider ICE arrests about 100,000 people every single year, give or take, let's assume they have a 99% accuracy rate, which I think is pretty good. You know, Frankly, I don't think they're at that level. It's probably a lot less. But for the sake of argument, assume they're 99% accurate. If you've got 100,000 arrests every year, that means you've got at least 1,000 Americans going into the system even with 99% accuracy, and that's just entirely fucked up. If the government is doing fewer things, it's easier to have checks on what they're doing to make sure they're doing it properly. You can't do it now when you have the sprawling Leviathan that we've got where there's a bazillion fucking agencies with tens of bazillion fucking agents operating in however many jurisdictions routinely fucking shit up. Uh, so that's out of the L.A. Times. There's a new study in a science journal called The New Atlantis on sentencing algorithms, basically confirming what we've talked about before, uh, that algorithms perpetuate and exacerbate racial discrimination because there's just no way to fix it unless you fix the society side of how we treat crime. Uh, so from the article entitled Algorithmic Injustice, I'm going to read you the executive summary. It says, quote, the article explores allegations of racism in criminal sentencing algorithms that are used in courts across America to help judges assess a defendant's risk of reoffending. The article focuses on a controversy raised by a 2016 ProPublica investigation that found racially disparate outcomes in COMPAS, Compass, a widely used sentencing algorithm. The article makes a central argument that there is a fairness paradox 
Racial disparities of many kinds can result from sentencing algorithms, and reducing one kind inevitably means increasing another, as long as disparities exist in the justice system itself. In arrest and sentencing rates, it is mathematically impossible for a sentencing algorithm to eliminate all disparities at once. Other key claims include the racial disparities uncovered by ProPublica. For example, non-reoffending black defendants were nearly twice as likely as white defendants to have been mistakenly labeled high risk are a mathematical consequence of the fact that black people are arrested and convicted at higher rates than white people. Present debates are bogged down by unclear and confusing terminology. Common terms like accuracy have different meanings in statistics than they do in everyday language, and even experts tend to use them in a confusing manner. Uh, It continues, Much of the dispute over sentencing algorithms arises from unstated disagreements about how statistical metrics like sensitivity and false positive rate correspond to qualitative ideas of fairness and justice like disparate treatment and disparate impact. The article includes charts and tables that aim to clear up confusion around statistical terms and translate them into accessible moral language. Criminal sensing algorithms aim to make sentencing decisions more fair by insulating them from bias and other flaws of human judgment. But the fairness paradox shows that algorithms cannot be neutral, that each is based on a value choice. And algorithms now in wide use threaten to entrench existing racial disparities in arrest and conviction rates. It goes on from there. The study itself is lengthy and very study-esque. You know, we've talked before that, you know, studies are written for scientists. They're not always easily digestible. Uh, But it's got some good stuff. So we'll give you a link. You can check it out. Uh, Out of Reason Magazine, they've done a compilation of this year's promposals. Uh, This is when police abuse their power to help out kids arrest women that they want to ask to prom. Uh, It's similar to this stupid fucking pulling you over to give you a Thanksgiving turkey type shit that we've covered before. Uh, But from the Reason article says, quote, After a police officer pulls over a teenaged girl without any legal justification and frightens her to the verge of tears, the local press portrays the incident as charming rather than alarming. You know what that means. Prom season is upon us. The cop-assisted promposal, in which police help a teenager carry out a prank that ends with an invitation to the big dance, has become a familiar springtime ritual, documented in online videos and feel-good newspaper stories. But beneath the warm and fuzzy images of adolescent couples lurks a disturbing willingness to tolerate abuses of power by police officers as long as their motives are pure. When a cop makes a traffic stop, He is using his special powers as an armed agent of the state to forcibly detain someone. Under the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures, he needs a good reason to use those powers, typically reasonable suspicion of a crime or traffic violation. There is no promposal exception to the Fourth Amendment, yet police officers across the country are happy to make traffic stops in the name of young love. And there's a list with a whole bunch of hyperlinks throughout the story. It's revolting. It's absolutely revolting that we do this in this country. Uh, In federal government news, The Intercept has an expose where Customs and Border Protection, I've got to, so in past podcasts, I've called them Customs and Border Patrol. I was corrected after the last time I did that. It's Customs and Border Protection. I'm putting that in air quotes because they're not really protecting much of anything. Uh, But they've been faking the numbers of how many agents have been assaulted, and they've done it in a, a comical federal government fashion. Like if you were to come up with fake statistics, this would be the way to do it. Uh, So the intercept has done this analysis 
And it says, quote, According to U.S. Customs and Border Protection data, assaults on Border Patrol officers increased dramatically in fiscal year 2016, reversing a long downward trend. That year, CBP claims there were 454 assaults on agents nationwide, compared with 378 in fiscal year 2015, a 20% increase. Now, I'm going to pause and do a sidebar here. Keep in mind, that number, 454, is even though we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of ICE officers doing roughly a third to a half a million apprehensions every year. So it's a teeny tiny fraction of a number as it is. So any increase in that number is going to look like a dramatic increase in percentage because you're starting from a smaller base and that's how percentages work. So keep all of that math in mind and listen to the magic of what happens. Okay, Uh, In 2017, according to CBP, there were 786 assaults, a spike of 73%, even as apprehensions fell from 415,816 to 310,532. Almost the entire increase, 271 purported assaults, was said to have occurred in one sector, the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas. A large number of the assaults supposedly occurred on a single day, according to charts and details provided by Christina Coleman, a CBP public affairs spokesperson. In response to questions from The Intercept about the data, Coleman explained in an email that, subquote, an incident in the Rio Grande Valley sector on February 14th, 2017, involved seven U.S. Border Patrol agents assaulted by six subjects utilizing three different types of projectiles, rocks, bottles, and tree branches, therefore totaling... I shouldn't laugh. I'm sorry. Therefore, totaling 126 assaults. Do you notice that? So you have seven agents, you have six subjects, and you have three projectiles. So what they did is they multiplied seven times six times three. It's not how the fucking works. Uh, So the story continues. According to conventional law enforcement accounting, and the word conventional there is doing a lot of work. Like it's, it's dripping with shade. Uh, According to conventional law enforcement accounting, this single incident should have been tallied as seven agents assaulted, not seven agents times six perpetrators times three projectiles. Subtracting the seven agents from 126 leaves 119 extra assaults that falsely and grossly inflate the data, making it appear to the public that far more agents were assaulted. In addition to this one instance of clear inflation admitted to the intercept, Data from the Rio Grande Valley indicate 98 additional events in 2017, and several of these also appear to be padded. In almost all other Border Patrol sectors, a review of aggregate statistics for 2017 shows that the average number of assaults per incident is one, or at most two. But in the Rio Grande Valley, the average is about four assaults per incident, and all the Rio Grande Valley contributed over 300 suspicious-looking assaults to the CBP's 2017 database, creating the illusion that agents were suddenly being assailed that year. And it, it goes on from there. So they do even more analysis of the bullshit data from the federal government. So keep in mind, when people talk about shit like war on cops and everything else, they're fucking lying to you. Uh, All right, state-by-state news. There's a lot. We're on page 7 of the outline, by the way. We've got another 20 to go. Uh, Out of Alabama, 
in Sarah Land. A lot of you have already seen this. The first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, three white officers, all men, decided to manhandle a black woman and ended up stripping her to the point that her boobs are flashed out all over the place as they're trying to place her under arrest. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, white police officers in Alabama wrestled a black woman to the ground in a Waffle House early Sunday, exposing her breasts during the struggle and prompting comparisons to the arrest of two black men at a Philadelphia Starbucks earlier this month. The incident, which was caught on a video that went viral, sparked a sit-in at the store Sunday afternoon and led to responses from the NAACP and some celebrities, even as Waffle House officials contested the details of the story. The video shows Chakisha Clemens, 25, sitting on a chair at the diner as one of the officers grabs her neck and right wrist in an attempt to subdue her. Clemens describes a disagreement with a store employee that triggered the police response. She soon appears to realize that the tube top she is wearing is slipping, and she raises her arms to cover her bust line. You're not going to grab on me like that. No, Clemens tells the officer, who appears to speak to another officer off camera. What happens next is unclear. The widely circulated video, filmed by Clemens' friend Kenita Adams, jumps to the moment when Clemens and the two officers go to the ground in a violent tumble. What are you doing? Clemens asks during the struggle. I'll break your arm. That's what I'm about to do, an officer says. The struggle continues with officers demanding that Clemens stop resisting as her breasts are exposed. At one point, an officer places his hand over her neck. You're choking me, Clemens cries out. The officer releases his grip when a third officer nearby gestures with his hand. Clemens was arrested about 2.45 a.m. and charged with disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. It's a very difficult video to watch. Uh, you should watch it because there's going to be several videos we reference this week that highlight the they treat black people like they're not people. They treat them like they're fucking sacks of potatoes that you can just whip around as you see fit. And it's particularly disturbing in this woman's case because they're practically trying to disrobe her. You know, they're supposedly trying to roll her over and have her in handcuffs. But there's three guys against one woman who's drunk. If you can't do that without taking her tube top off, and at one point in the video, guys like practically pulling on her damn dress, um, it's a little ridiculous. So we'll give you that story in the show notes, including the video. Out of California, we got one, two, three, four cases in California. Uh, out of Barstow. Now, you might remember last week, we talked about the extrajudicial summary execution of Deontay Yarber in a Walmart parking lot where police just decided to unload into an occupied car without knowing who all was in it. Well, you'll be shocked, I'm sure, to know that one of the officers involved in his death has been previously convicted of a hate crime, but somehow is still on the force. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a Barstow, California police officer accused of being involved in the fatal shooting of driver Deontay Yarber, a young father of three, was convicted of a hate crime back in 2010, but was somehow allowed to return to the police force. Not only was the officer allowed back on the streets to police people he apparently despises, but Yarber's attorney also says that the officers involved in his client's death used racial slurs during the confrontation in early April. One of the officers shouted, subquote, N-word, we're going to kill you, except the N-word is in brackets. That's not actually what they said. They said it. Uh, attorney Lee Merritt claimed, citing interviews with witnesses, according to KABC-TV. Uh, Barstow police have so far refused to name the officers involved, but Merritt identified one officer as Jimmy Alfred Walker, who is white, 
An L.A. Times report from 2010 shows that Walker, then 30, was arrested on hate crime and battery charges for using racial slurs while assaulting a man and a woman during a late-night altercation while he was off-duty. He was released on $50,000 bail following his arrest, was later allowed to plead guilty to a lesser charge, ultimately got his job back, and was even paid a settlement by the department. Fun times in Barstow. Out of Los Angeles, we have the fifth rule of Fisk. When people say blue lives matter, they don't mean the dark blue ones. Uh, An officer was arrested on immigration charges, and I want you to listen to how the media has framed it. So the headline for the story says, quote, LAPD officer arrested for trying to smuggle immigrants across border. And it continues, quote, a Los Angeles police officer has been arrested on federal charges, alleging he tried to smuggle two illegal immigrants into the United States this week in southeastern San Diego County. Mombase Kulabalo Patera has been charged with violating immigration laws, according to a federal complaint filed Wednesday. Basically, they were caught at a checkpoint 12 miles north of the border. The story says, quote, one of the men said they had known Kulabalo for years and had worked for him at his Fontana home. He added they had decided to go to a casino in Alpine in southern San Diego County before heading to another one in Campo and ending up at the border checkpoint near Pine Valley. Now, I'm not familiar with California geography. I don't know if that particular transportation route makes sense. But what I do know is that federal complaints are available online through a program called PACER. It's an acronym that stands for Public Access to Court Electronic Records. So me being me, I decided to pull up the PACER complaint about this guy's arrest. And there's no allegation in there that he tried to smuggle anyone across the border. That's just what the media has said, because this particular officer happens to be black. The violation that he is actually accused of is 8 United States Code, Section 1324, Subpart A, Sub-Subpart 1, Sub-Sub-Subpart A, Sub-Sub-Subpart 2, which says... Any person who, knowing or in reckless disregard of the fact that an alien has come to, entered, or remains in the United States in violation of law, transports, moves, or attempts to transport or move such alien within the United States by means of transportation or otherwise. Basically just means if you know someone's here illegally and you all decide that you're going to go to the grocery store together, you have violated this same law. So going to the casino is still that type of violation. It's a federal class E felony punishable by up to five years in prison. So bear that in mind if you happen to see that story, that the media narrative of it is bullshit. Uh, Out of Sacramento, the Golden State Killer, also known as the East Area Rapist, a guy who killed 12 people, raped 45 women. He's finally been caught. And you will be shocked, shocked to find out that he was a police officer. From the story, it says, quote, a one-time cop who's been living quietly in the Sacramento suburbs was fingered Wednesday as the East Area Rapist, with authorities saying DNA helped link him to a string of at least 12 slayings and 45 rapes that terrorized communities in the Bay Area and across California from 1976 to 1986. This guy was on the job for 10 years. Uh, Joseph James D'Angelo, now 72, a former police officer in Placer and Tulare counties at the time some of the crimes were committed, was arrested in what had been one of the most heinous unsolved crime sprees in U.S. history. 
The East Area Rapist, also known as the Golden State Killer and the original Night Stalker, was connected to a series of rapes in Danville, Walnut Creek, San Jose, Fremont, and San Ramon in 1978 and 1979. In addition to the homicides and rapes, authorities suspect D'Angelo committed more than 150 home break-ins across the state. D'Angelo was a police officer in Exeter to Laird County from 1973 to 1976 before joining the force in Auburn, Placer County from 1976 until 1979. They said it was likely D'Angelo committed his first rape while still with the Exeter Department. I'm sure that surprises you if you pay attention to, for example, the fine upstanding specimens in the NYPD. Uh, The story continues. D'Angelo was arrested outside his Citrus Heights home, where law enforcement had set up surveillance for several days. Officials said his DNA matched evidence connected to the East Area Rapist's very first suspected murder victims, Mather Air Force Base Sergeant Brian Maggiore and his wife Katie Maggiore. I hope he gets locked up and put away for a while. It's disgusting that it's taken three decades to find him, but better late than never. Uh, out of San Francisco, a San Francisco Police Department officer has been arrested for raping someone while they were unconscious. Again, you notice a theme here. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Officer Justin McCall, 30, has been charged with sexual penetration of an unconscious person and sexual penetration by a foreign object, to which he has pleaded not guilty. McCall, a four-year veteran of the San Francisco Police Department, was arrested in connection with a September 6th incident in which a person was allegedly assaulted while she was unconscious, police said. Immediately after the September incident was reported, that same month, the Police Department's Internal Affairs Criminal Division investigated the claims, and McCall was placed in a non-public contact position. After his arrest, he was suspended without pay. Give you that story so you can see the updates. Out of Florida, in Miami-Dade, we do have good news. Don't let it be said I don't cover good news. Uh, All charges have been dropped against Devin Gibbs. He was the guy who was defending himself against a racist in McDonald's, uh, fired a gun, and was charged with felonies. From the story in the Miami Herald, it says, quote, Devin Gibbs just wanted McDonald's. But the visit to the North Miami-Dade Golden Arches unraveled when another patron accused him of cutting in line to order. That customer, an older white man, suddenly began spouting racial slurs and threats at Gibbs, a young black man. The episode ended with Gibbs in jail for firing a shot at the irate but unarmed customer, causing panic inside the restaurant. Nearly three years later, however, Gibbs has been cleared of any crime. He persuaded a Miami judge that he was only acting in self-defense when he fired at Philip Ladia at the door of the fast food restaurant in December 2015. So basically, this guy comes up to him in line and claims that he cut in line ahead of him, says, I got something for you, N-word, I'll kill you, N-word, I'm going to shoot you. Uh, Gibbs left the restaurant. And then this guy went to go sit down to grab his food. So Gibbs came back in to order his stuff and get it. And as he's leaving, this guy gets up from eating his food at his table and follows Gibbs out the door, gesturing like he's got a a gun in his waistband. So Gibbs pulls a weapon and fires it at the door. doesn't hit anybody. uh, But he ended up being the one that was charged. Uh, So it turns out there's surveillance video, which I'm sure is shocking, Uh, showing that this Ladia guy was grabbing as if he had a weapon, and he was deposed in a deposition where he says that, yeah, I came out to kick his ass. I'm from New York. I don't back down to anything. Uh, So glad that even three years later, this guy has had, uh, Mr. Gibbs has had all charges against him dropped. 
uh, out of Georgia. Another first rule of Fisk, and this is frankly another very difficult video to watch, but I think you should anyway because it highlights the sheer brutality and banality of how police deal with black people. They're caught on a bystander's mobile phone just brutalizing the fuck out of former NFL player Desmond Mero. And the guy's like, like literally crying out, begging for mercy. And basically three officers beat him, pick him up, slam him onto the asphalt. He gets his teeth fucked up. They roll him over. They choke him out until he loses consciousness. It's and one of them is like standing there grinning from ear to ear. There's a fourth plainclothes officer standing like he's going to get involved. Uh, it's, it's pretty disgusting. So from the story, it says, quote, a former college football player was slammed to the ground and choked until he said he was unconscious during an arrest by Henry County police officers in a Sharping Center parking lot. Cell phone video of the attack shows Desmond Marrow, 30, a former University of Toledo cornerback, detailed the arrest in a lengthy Facebook post Thursday night. Merrow was charged with making terroristic threats and obstruction, both felonies, as well as reckless driving and aggressive driving, both misdemeanors, according to the Henry District Attorney's Office. A magistrate judge later dropped the terrorist threats charge, and the case was transferred to the DA's office. Now I'm going to pause. Magistrate judges don't drop charges. What they do is they dismiss charges when there's not sufficient evidence to have someone charged. So basically they charge this guy with a felony, even though they had no evidence to back it up. So it didn't even get to the point that the DA could look at it. The magistrate judge got rid of it when the guy's first going to the jail. Um, Video of the arrest shows Merrill being slammed to the ground by officers who he says thought his cell phone, which was in his back pocket, was actually a gun. Merrill was heard repeatedly saying, I'm not even fighting back. You'll note in the video, he's also handcuffed, so he can't fight back. Uh, During the arrest, the police knocked my teeth out, slammed me on my head, and choked me out until I was unconscious, Merrill said in the Facebook post. Before he fainted, Merrill told officers he couldn't breathe. In the incident report, the officer wrote that he later tried to take a photo of Merrill's face, but he objected. There was no visible injury to his face or head, the officer wrote in his report. Uh, Subquote, we are working to determine why the officers resorted to this level of violence with a man who was already handcuffed and complying with orders. Marrow's attorney said, we are also investigating why the officers lied and included false information on their report. Uh, They lied because that's what they do because they don't realize that people have video. We've covered so many stories in the past year that you kind of realize some of this stuff is just standard operating procedure. Uh, So that was out of Georgia in Illinois, out of Chicago. uh, Tyler Lumar has died two years after he tried to kill himself in jail during a wrongful arrest. Um, we would have covered this had Fiskamal existed back then because this is one of those I've said before that our government is closer to Kafka's The Trial than it is Orwell's 1984. You know, it's common for conservatives to whine about Big Brother, but that's really not the issue. The issue is in the trial, you basically have a guy who's accused of a crime, can't figure out who the fuck to talk to to figure out what is going on. And he's constantly going about in this labyrinthine mess. And eventually he dies at the end. I mean, it's a very depressing fucking story. But I'm going to give you the story and and we'll get there. So here's the details. It says, quote, a man who tried to hang himself in a Chicago police lockup, prompting his family to accuse officers of wrongfully detaining him, died Wednesday morning. 
Tyler Lamar, 24, died at the landmark of Des Plaines Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in the northwest suburb, where he had been treated after suffering massive brain injuries during the suicide attempt in August 2016 at the Harrison District Station on Chicago's west side. The Chicago Tribune highlighted Lamar's ordeal in a front-page article last November after his mother filed a lawsuit against the city and the Chicago Police Department on her son's behalf. At the time, Lamar had spent the last year on life support, racking up about $2 million in medical bills. Now, get this. Quote, police arrested Lamar because authorities in Lee County in western Illinois had issued a warrant over an overdue $25 payment in a 2015 misdemeanor traffic case. Lamar had paid the $25, but authorities in Lee County had failed to withdraw the warrant. Chicago police contacted Lee County about the warrant and learned it carried a $500 bond. The way the system works, Lamar could have posted 10%, $50, and gone home. Lamar had $130 on him, according to the arrest report. But for unknown reasons, and I'm putting unknown reasons in air quotes, Chicago police put an extradition hold on Lamar, meaning he would be jailed in the Harrison District lockup while waiting for Lee County to pick him up, falsely stating on an arrest report that the bond information was not available. The next day, while he was in a Cook County Jail bullpen waiting to go to court, a sheriff's officer found a packet of crack cocaine near Lumar, but security video showed that it was actually another inmate who removed the item from his shoe and tossed it next to Lumar. Police had earlier searched Lumar at least eight times without finding drugs. So with this extradition hold and now facing narcotics charges on top of it, Lamar was sent again to the Harrison District lockup He was later found hanging by his own shirt. This entire Chicago PD is fucked up as it is. There are certainly more more fucked up departments, but this whole story is just fucked up from start to finish. Uh, Out of Kentucky and Louisville, the Louisville Metro PD has been on a killing spree. They've executed three black people in four days. That's a fucking accomplishment. Um, And I mean that sarcastically. So I don't want someone, you know, taking a snippet of this podcast in the future and thinking that I'm actually touting it as an accomplishment. It's fucking grotesque. Uh, Louisville Metro Police have killed Miguel Vivas on the 22nd, uh, Damon Jaya Jordan on the 24th, and Isaac Jackson on the 25th. So three people in four days. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, members of Louisville's, sorry, let me pause, Louisville, Louisville, however the fuck you pronounce it. I'm pronouncing it Louisville, all right? Don't worry about correcting me. I've been corrected before, and I can never remember how to do it properly. So it's going to be Louisville from now on. Uh, Members of Louisville's Black Lives Matter rallied outside LMPD headquarters Thursday afternoon, saying officers should be held accountable for the suspects shot and killed by police. The reason that we are showing up is because Louisville is a city that needs to be held accountable, said Truman Harris with Black Lives Matter, because it is absurd that three people of color have been shot down within the past four days, so there's no way that we can be silent on this. Now, here's the crazy shit. They had already planned this rally for Thursday, even before the officers shot and killed another person that night. You know, back when I ran for the Senate back in 2016, We didn't have the podcast back then, but I was still fairly vocal on Twitter. And every now and then I would get questions. People would ask if I felt that I was taking a risk by calling out the police, especially on some of the high profile cases where things went viral. You know, did I regret that? 
And I was like, fuck no. Because even if I, I say something that people consider offensive, my answer was, quote, there's going to be another fuck up in a couple days. And that, that's basically how this works. The police kill so many people every single day. We're looking at three and a half people dead a day like clockwork. Sometimes it's more. Very rarely it's less. But the police kill so many people that there's always a new fucking controversy because they're just so goddamn trigger happy. Uh, so that was out of Kentucky and Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck for criminal justice. Uh, out of Baton Rouge, Attorney General Jeff Landry is arguing that uh, telling a police officer you're going to file a complaint against them should be grounds for you to be arrested as part of a crime that carries a five-year prison sentence. From the story, it says, quote, On April 30th of 2015, William Aubin Jr. was at home with his wife in Livingston Parish when a patrol car from the sheriff's office pulled onto his street. The deputy, William Durkin, was there to investigate a reckless driving complaint. Aubin wasn't involved in the incident, but he knew about it and went outside of his home to speak with Durkin. During a vulgar and combative conversation, Durkin repeatedly called Aubin a pussy. I'm calling your supervisor, Aubin said. I'm going to get you fired. Aubin took out his cell phone, called the sheriff's department, and started walking back towards his house. But before he had made it inside, Durkin arrested him. The charge, intimidation of a public official, a felony that in Louisiana carries a maximum penalty of five years in prison. The 21st Judicial District Attorney's Office, whose jurisdiction includes Livingston Parish, ultimately declined to prosecute Aubin. But in a lawsuit filed in April 2016 in the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Louisiana against Durkin and his supervisor, Aubin challenged the constitutionality of the statute that led to his arrest. The statute prohibits, subquote, the use of violence, force, or threats with the intent to influence an official's conduct in relation to his position, employment, or duty. The statute's constitutionality was also called into question in a December 2015 incident in nearby Tangipahoa Parish. I know I'm flubbing that one. Sorry. Louisiana has some weird names. Uh, when officers pepper sprayed a man named Travis Seals, even though he was already in handcuffs. After telling the officers he was going to file the complaint against them, he too was charged with public intimidation. Seals then launched his own lawsuit, also in federal court, challenging its constitutionality. Uh, what you find is that two federal judges have both declared the statute unconstitutional, but the attorney general is appealing it to the Circuit Court of Appeals anyway because he thinks it's a good idea to be able to jail people for saying they're going to file complaints against the police. Uh, out of New Jersey and Tanafly, 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 however the fuck you pronounce it. Uh, turns out the first rule of Fisk isn't just for police, it's for politicians as well. As a Port Authority commissioner shows up to swear at officers, hoping that they can get her daughter out of a traffic ticket. From the story, it says, quote, There is, of course, no official manual on how to use an official government position to get officers to tear up a ticket. But for any enterprising self-help author looking to write one, a dash cam video featuring a purple vest wearing recently resigned Karen Turner might prove insightful. During an Easter weekend traffic stop that involved her daughter, Turner flashed her gold Port Authority of New York and New Jersey badge and demanded that the law officers call her by her title. Don't call me miss. It's commissioner, she said. She also said early and often that she is a friend of the mayor and also happens to be a personal acquaintance of the police chief. 
She may have even been invited to attend the officer's police academy graduation, she told them. She made sure the officers knew they were dealing with the cream of Tenafly society, not riffraff. She is an attorney, she told them. Her daughter is a student at Yale, and the younger woman's friends attend MIT, and the officers were ruining what had been a nice Easter weekend hike. And when all of that failed, she cursed at the officers and told them to shut up. And of course, all of this is on Dashcam. So we give you the link so you can see the video. To the officers' credit, they were very restrained, very respectful. They did what they were supposed to do. I'm sure part of that was because this Karen Turner is white, but they did a good job. Uh, out of New York, in New York City, NYPD is illegally accessing and sharing sealed arrest records so they can get more severe penalties for arrestees. From the story, it says, quote, your permanent record is not a myth. Cops are using and sharing sealed arrest records illegally, allowing them to level harsher penalties against New Yorkers, especially on minorities, according to a bombshell lawsuit filed Tuesday in the Manhattan Supreme Court. Despite a state law requiring the NYPD to destroy all records if the suspect is found not guilty or the charges are dropped, including destroying fingerprints, mugshots, and arrest reports, police keep the records and use them to investigate and charge people. A Wappingers Falls man, identified in the lawsuit only by the initials RC, says he fell victim to this unlawful police policy when he was rousted from his sleep at his mother's home in 2015 by detectives accusing him of an armed robbery. Though the man was in Danbury, Connecticut at the time of the crime, a witness picked out his mugshot from a sealed arrest because he fit the description of one of the gunmen, a white Hispanic male, 15 to 19 years old, with black hair. The charges were dismissed in November 2016, but not before R.C. lost his job and was forced to give up his college plans after a year of court dates. Can you imagine, you're, you're, if you're the NYPD... You're running this obviously illegal scheme for a while. And the part that does you in is you arrest a guy who's in a completely different fucking state at the time of the crime you arrest him for. They're, they're so stupid. Um, also in New York City, the family has filed suit against the city for the extrajudicial summary execution of Marioa Sanabria. Uh, we talked about him back in episode 42, Time is a Flat Circle. That's the one where we talked with Karan Myers. Uh, his story is in that one. Sanabria was the 69-year-old who police broke into his home at 4 o'clock in the morning as part of a no-knock raid. And Sanabria pulls out a machete to defend the home because his 92-year-old brother was asleep in an adjacent room. And it turns out the cops weren't even looking for either of those guys. They were looking for the 92-year-old's uh, kid, Miguel Conde. Uh, so they got Conde arrested after they've killed Sanabria. So they kill Sanabria, arrest Conde. Well, the charges against Conde get dropped. So they didn't even prosecute anyone. They got to the wrong home, arrested the wrong guy, killed someone in the process. Uh, and from the story, it also says, quote, police also didn't recover any weapons and only found the stub of a marijuana joint. So we did all this for fucking what? Uh, so the family is suing, asking for $50 million. So we'll give you a link to that story. Out of North Carolina. It's been a busy week in North Carolina, man. We got one, two, three, four, five stories in North Carolina. Let's start in Catawba County because there are two of them that are just bizarre. 
so a DA's office investigator has been arrested on a 32-year-old warrant for felony larceny. That's the first weird story. It says, quote, an employee of District Attorney David Lerner has been asked to turn himself in on a felony larceny warrant from 1985, according to a press release from the district attorney. Catawba County Sheriff Coy Reed personally called and asked Bobby Lee Powell, 75, to turn himself in on the warrant in what Lerner called a, subquote, clear political ploy. Lerner is up for re-election this year and will face fellow Republican Scott Riley in the May 8th primary election. Reed's son, Jason Reed, is running to replace his dad as Catawba County Sheriff. He will face Republican Don Brown in the Republican primary. Subquote, the warrant has been dormant for more than three decades, even though Mr. Powell has lived in Catawba and Burke counties all of his life and could be readily located, the district attorney said in the release. Lerner said Powell has been an excellent employee for the state and that he questions Reed's timing in serving the warrant. Now, here's the thing, and this is why this is a weird story. Do you blame the sheriff for the fact that he sat on this for 32 years? Yeah, I think that's blameworthy. But at the same time, how the fuck are you a district attorney and you hire someone and you don't think to run a background check to see if they have any active warrants? Holy shit. So Catawba County is all kinds of fucked up, uh, but it continues in a completely separate story. A Hickory Police Department officer, Hickory's part of Catawba County, has been federally indicted for beating the fuck out of a woman and then falsifying reports to cover it up. Uh, According to Hickory Police, former Sergeant Robert George, 45, was arrested Monday by Hickory Police and agents from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The arrest follows an indictment by a federal grand jury on charges of using excessive force against a female arrestee and obstructing justice. The alleged incident happened on November 11, 2013. Sources told WBTV in 2014 that the incident happened as George was attempting to take a woman into custody for disruptive behavior and resisting arrest. George said the woman fell to the pavement and was injured. The woman claimed George assaulted her. The bill of indictment released Monday states George slammed the woman face first to the ground while her hands were cuffed behind her back. The document states that George then falsified a report stating the woman fell to the ground instead. Now, there's some bullshit coming up here. Uh, It says Monday, District Attorney David Lerner said George was indicted on state-level felony charges in 2014, but the charges were never tried because, subquote, Every time the state calendared the case for trial, Mr. George's lawyer requested continuances that various judges allowed, even though the state was prepared and ready to try the case. Here's my problem with that. That, that is true. We do do those sorts of things. When the case is calendared, if we have a reason to continue it, we will ask for a continuance. And the continuances are more liberally given in rural counties than they are in the city. So like in Durham, if I've got a district court case, it's getting tried within 120 days. They don't give us extensions beyond 90 days. So if you are lucky to get that 30 day cushion for some reason, that's a wrap Uh, for felonies. It's getting tried within a couple months. I mean, they've got a system where they're, they keep it uh, pretty, we call it a rocket docket. They keep it very orderly. But if I, as the defense attorney, request a continuance. The continuance is marked as having been requested by the defense. So whenever I run out of continuances, that's it. And if for some reason the state needs to continue, they usually have the option of doing that if I, as the defense attorney, have requested all the continuances up until that point. So there's no logical explanation to me 
that this should not have been tried at the state level anyway. Now, hopefully this guy's going to get handled federally. You know, beating up on Aristides is bad, but I don't really buy the whole argument that the reason this wasn't tried at the state level was because of continuances. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, out of Fayetteville, the city of Fayetteville has decided it's going to criminalize you voluntarily choosing to help the homeless with your own money. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, one North Carolina city is trying a controversial new approach to thwarting rampant panhandling at busy intersections. Fine the well-intentioned people who give panhandlers money through car windows. The Fayetteville City Council recently passed such an ordinance banning vehicle occupants from giving items to pedestrians on the side of the road. Fayetteville city leaders have been sensitive about their new ordinance being referred to as a panhandling regulation. Instead, they're insisting it is a safety issue. City Councilman Bill Crisp told the Fayetteville Observer that people wouldn't give a panhandler a dollar if they knew they might be fined $25. There has to be some deterrent to giving them the money, Crisp was quoted as saying. Panhandlers in Fayetteville have complained bitterly about the new ordinance, saying it violates their rights, according to media outlets. Subquote, if somebody is willing to donate and help somebody that's trying to do what they can as opposed to robbing and stealing and boosting, yeah, I think it's ludicrous. Panhandler Jessica McFall told TV station WRAL. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree it's ludicrous, and here's why. Y'all, panhandling is work. I've talked about this before. Panhandling is work. Now, it's not socially productive work. You or I don't get value from panhandling like we would from, you know, someone producing food that we later consume, but it's still work. It's more work than sitting at home collecting an entitlement check. And the only difference between a panhandler and a politician is that one happens to wear a suit. They still do the same begging. You know how much begging I had to do when I ran for the state Senate? I was asking people for money all the fucking time. Politicians do it even more than I do. And frankly, a lot of candidates also have drug and alcohol problems. So if that's the basis for not giving them money, that doesn't make a whole fuckload of sense either. The fact is, you should be able to choose to give your money to whoever the fuck you want. It's not the government's business. If you happen to want to give the money to someone who's homeless on the side of the road, you should have the right to do that. You know, I give money to people periodically. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what, there's one guy that said something to the effect of, I'll bet you a dollar you read this sign or something like that. And it made me laugh. It was fucking funny because you know what? I read the sign. So I pulled over and I gave the guy two bucks because that's what I had on me at the time. I should have the God given right to do that as part of my freedom of association. And he should have the God-given right to stand on the side of a road with a sign written like that as part of his freedom of expression. If you can stand on a sidewalk and preach about whatever or sell bean pies or whatever the fuck you want to do, that's great. That's part of America. You should also be able to be homeless and ask people for money. So fuck Fayetteville. It's a terrible city. I refuse to live down there. Uh, out of Gaston County, so we're back on the western part of North Carolina, for those of you that know your geography, uh, an assistant district attorney has been arrested for meth and heroin possession. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, an assistant district attorney is no longer handling cases in Gaston County after his weekend arrest on drug charges. Waxhaw police pulled James Brandon Graham over just before 1.30 in the morning Sunday. He was arrested after police allegedly found methamphetamine and heroin. Graham was driving a black Honda Accord with an expired tag and an inspection violation. According to Waxhaw Police Captain Bobby Hulk, Graham was also speeding, Hulk said. 
Uh, basically, police, when they pulled him over, you can kind of see inside. It's part of the plain view exception to a search. Uh, they found a syringe with a brown fluid in it, asked him for permission to search the car, which he gave. Uh, and the story continues, quote, there police found 11 syringes, six which contained heroin and three that tested positive for meth. Two syringes were empty. They also spotted a belt believed to have been used as a tourniquet. Graham had been employed at the Gaston County District Attorney's Office for five or six years, according to District Attorney Locke Bell. Bell wouldn't say whether he fired Graham, but did say his cases would be dispersed among other prosecutors in his office. Drug cases were among the workload Graham handled. I hope the guy gets the treatment he needs, because in the mugshot, he looks pretty rough. And if you're, uh, if you're shooting up those types of things, the addiction issues are fucking serious. Uh, so on the one hand, fuck him for being a law enforcement officer as a district attorney prosecuting people for drugs. Uh, but on the other hand, I truly do hope that he gets the help he needs out of Greenville, uh, being white has its perks. So we'd have East Carolina university. I've got several friends that have gone there. Well, the Phi Kappa Tau fraternity has been investigated and four students were potentially going to be suspended. We don't know cause they're going to get to finish the semester first. From the story, it says, quote, Grant Swanner, Nolan Leonard, Jordan Kowalski, and William Carter were arrested on April 10th when Greenville Police Department searched the house at 409 Elizabeth Street and found more than 2,500 Xanax bars. That's a fuckload of Xanax, uh, marijuana, and drug paraphernalia. Following their arrests, the national organization suspended ECU's chapter of the fraternity. John Mounts, the director of Greek life at ECU, said the individual's cases and the disciplining of their chapter would be resolved separately. However, since the students had not yet gone through any sort of disciplinary process with the university, they are allowed to finish the semester. Now, that's the difference between being white and being black. So I represent a lot of black students who get charged with just petty shit like weed. And the university moves very quickly to have them suspended as quickly as possible until the charges get resolved. They don't fuck around. There's no lengthy delay. These kids were arrested April 10th and they're going to get to finish the semester. That's nuts. You know, that's not how they do things at Central. That's for damn sure. Uh, so just bear in mind the disparities are present at the college level as well. Uh, out of Oklahoma, we got another story about Norman. It's good news. I mean, don't let it be said I don't report good news. But you might remember, we talked about the department a few weeks ago where they had an officer-involved shooting, and the department just said, fuck it, we're going to come out and give you all the information. It was a very orderly and, and uh, high-disclosure press conference. Well, in this particular case, they arrested a murder suspect who was a black guy, armed, killed somebody, had been on the run for days, and they ended up arresting him without incident. It's actually very impressive. So kudos to Norman PD. We'll give you a link to that story. Uh, out of Oregon, in Beaverton, a mentally ill man was suicidal. So the police said challenge accepted and gunned him down themselves. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a man was shot by police after they say he shot at them amid a mental health crisis in Beaverton Wednesday afternoon. Beaverton police said they were communicating with an armed man inside a gray pickup truck for several hours. <laughs> the situation started around 11 a.m. The man was having a mental health crisis and threatening to harm himself, according to police. Witnesses said police repeatedly told the man to come out of the car peacefully, but when he didn't, the SWAT team moved in. 
Police said at that point the man fired first and multiple officers fired back. No officers were hurt. The man was taken to the hospital in an ambulance and was pronounced dead. Here's the thing. If the guy is not coming out of the truck, you keep trying to convince him to come out of the truck. If he's legitimately suicidal, he's going to kill himself. If that's the case, you know that happens. None of your officers are threatened. The guy's dead. But if he's not truly suicidal, if he's, you know, if he's going through depression or some kind of mental health problem, but he doesn't deep down really want to take his own life, eventually he's going to come out. He's going to get hungry. He's going to have to take a shit. Something's going to happen where he will come out and you can de-escalate the situation. You don't send in the fucking SWAT unit. Like, who the fuck does that? Uh, so that's out of Beaverton in Oregon. In Clackamas County, all charges have been, and I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing that one. I apologize. I've, I've actually tried with Oregon to get things correct. I got Willamette correct finally, uh, but I'm calling it Clackamas County, and hopefully that's correct. Uh, all charges have been dropped against a sovereign citizen after a deputy beat the shit out of him. Um, I'm not going to tell you why. So I'm, I'm going to give you part of it. I'm going to skip to the end of the story and then I'm going to come back to the middle because the middle part is where the interesting stuff is. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, the Clackamas County District Attorney's Office on Friday asked an outside police agency to open a criminal investigation into a deputy accused of misconduct during an arrest last year. Prosecutors also dismissed their case against Ronald Strasser, the man whose arrest is now under scrutiny. Uh, so it continues at the end. When Strasser's name was called during a July 6th hearing, Strasser apparently did not respond at first. Uh, Your Honor, he is here, the deputy can be heard saying on a recording of the hearing. Uh, Are you, Mr. Strasser? The circuit judge asked. No, I'm not, Mr. Strasser, but I am here in regards to that matter, Strasser said. It's a common sovereign citizen tactic. Uh, oh, okay, the judge said before issuing an arrest warrant because of Strasser's refusal to acknowledge his identity. Then it will be a $25,000 warrant. Uh, pardon me, Strasser asked. As the judge repeats the warrant information, what sounds like a disturbance takes place, punctuated by Strasser saying in a louder voice, What's the matter? What's the problem? I am here in regards to this matter. Uh, According to O'Keefe's report, he asked Strasser to put his hands behind his back when he approached him after the judge issued the warrant. He said Strasser said, excuse me, and pulled away, prompting the deputy to pull the man's hair and drive him to the floor. They they slammed him to the floor to gain control. Uh, O'Keefe said the man resisted by keeping his hands near or under his body, which then led the deputy to deliver quote, 10 to 12 knee strikes to Strasser's side and back. Now, here's where it gets entertaining, and I mean that in a disturbing way. Uh, The sheriff's office did not open its own internal investigation into O'Keefe until Tuesday, even though the allegations were included in a lawsuit notice filed with the county last month by another deputy. Former Deputy Joel Manley is suing the county for retaliation and harassment claiming he was the subject of two internal affairs investigations and isolated by co-workers after he refused to participate in an off-color photo shoot at the courthouse last fall for a co-worker's retirement calendar. Manley retired last month. Manley alleges that O'Keefe last year asked to be placed in a courtroom with Strasser. Subquote, I just want a reason to beat the crap out of him. O'Keefe said that day, he's going to give it to me. 
Manley alleges that O'Keefe's supervisor, Sergeant Corey Smith, gave the okay. O'Keefe was later assigned to a courtroom where Strasser's criminal case was to be heard. So this was all premeditated. Uh, Subquote, this is a serious allegation that has impacted the entire case, said Chris Owen, the chief deputy district attorney for Clackamas County. Uh, Subquote, it would not be in the best interest of justice to continue with this prosecution. No shit, because you're basically going to expose that the sheriff's department is corrupt as fuck and plan this stuff ahead of time. Uh, So that's everything out of Oregon and Pennsylvania and Allegheny County. A dog escaped its yard and bit a police horse, so the owners were charged with felony assault. From the story, it says, quote, According to a news release and a criminal complaint, mounted police officers from Allegheny County and Pittsburgh's new unit were participating in a demonstration for a Citizens Police Academy program in Wilmerding the evening of April 18. A dog that wasn't properly secured escaped a side yard along Middle Avenue and attacked Jack, one of Pittsburgh's police horses, as he rode up Airbrake Avenue. Two men managed to secure the dog by its leash and put it in the back of a police car. Jack was left with puncture wounds on all four of his legs. A veterinarian examined and treated Jack for his injuries. Police said he was suffering no long-term effects from the attack. Police said David Osborne was taking care of the dog for Frederick Cook Jr. Cook and Osborne were both charged with felony aggravated assault and two counts of felony striking or injuring a police animal, along with summary charges of failing to secure their dog, failure to keep their dog under control, and harboring a dangerous dog. Now, the felony charges are going to get dismissed. I'm going to tell you that now. There's no conceivable way the prosecutor is going to be able to prove felony aggravated assault and felony striking a police animal because a dog got loose. It's not going to happen. But the fact is these charges are going to live forever on Google, and that is the nature of collateral consequences. The fact that they were arrested and charged with felonies is going to haunt them even though the cases are going to get dismissed. Allegheny County is ridiculous. Uh, At a Newcastle, Pennsylvania... The first rule of Fisk, again, the police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. An eyewitness posts a mobile phone video of police repeatedly slamming a guy's head into the floor while they're placing him under arrest, even though he's handcuffed. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Shocking footage shows police repeatedly slamming a suspect's head against the floor in a violent arrest. The man, who is being restrained by two police officers, was wanted on suspicion of assault. A cop has been placed on leave after the video surfaced. Officials in Newcastle, Pennsylvania have confirmed. Let me do a sidebar. Wouldn't it be nice if these people got put on leave when they actually committed the act as opposed to when they got caught committing the act? Uh, From the story, it continues, One of the officers can be seen slamming the man's head into the floor at least four times. A witness is heard saying, Don't kill him. The suspect then appears to be unconscious as the two cops stand up, and the voice off camera says, I think he's dead. You see in the video later, there's a pool of blood in that particular area. The police version of what happened is that this guy was drunk and supposedly reached for a knife in the kitchen, and I don't frankly understand why that means they had to slam his head into the ground four times after he's on the floor with two officers on top of him, Uh, but I don't speak cop, so I don't really know. Uh, Out of Philadelphia, the city is closing its House of Correction jail after a plummeting inmate population. So don't let it be said I don't report good news. This is good news. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, The American criminal justice system's gradual realization that too many people are in jail needlessly just got a large, visible boost 
from the city of Philadelphia. The city announced last week that it would close its notorious 91-year-old House of Correction jail because reforms begun two years ago have dropped the city's jail population by 33% without causing an increase in crime or chaos. Defense attorneys are working harder to get defendants released quickly with no bail or low bail. Prosecutors typically don't oppose that, and the city's judges are releasing them. Philadelphia police are taking more defendants to treatment rather than jail. More petitions for early parole from longer sentences are being granted. More space is now available in the city's six jails for rehabilitation programs, and less overtime pay is needed for jail guards. There is a strong consensus across the top levels of Philadelphia's justice system that the reforms are working. And part one crime in Philadelphia, murder, rape, robbery, aggravated assault, burglary, larceny, and auto theft is still down 3% over the past two years. That's fantastic news. Congratulations to the people of Philadelphia. I hope it continues. Uh, Out of Tennessee and Memphis, Memphis police are apparently profiling random Latino men for sport to check and see if they're citizens. From the story, it says, quote, a local Latino man said he was terrified when he was racially profiled by a Memphis Police Department officer while on a walk through his neighborhood. On Rondell Trevino's Tuesday evening walk in the Burclair area, he said he was accosted by an MPD officer who asked for his documentation. Trevino, who is the founder of the Immigration Project, a faith-based organization aimed to improve immigrant relations with the church, told the officer he was a U.S. citizen and works at a local church. After the officer insisted that he still needed to show documentation, Trevino gave the officer his social security card. Wow, I thought you'd be an illegal alien because you're Latino, the officer responded. So, fuck Memphis PD. Uh, Out of Texas, in Cameron County, this is a... (laughs) It's kind of funny, but it's weird and it's insane. Uh, Basically, a a jail employee stole fajitas and stole so many fajitas uh, that he's getting a 50-year prison sentence out of it. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, A man who admitted to stealing $1.2 million in fajitas over a nine-year period has... (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. I'm sorry. It's not funny. But holy fuck, 1.2 million in fajitas. Y'all know how many fajitas that is? Jesus. Uh, a man who admitted to stealing $1.2 million in fajitas over a nine-year period has been sentenced to 50 years in jail. Gilberto Escaramilla was an employee at the Cameron County, Texas Juvenile Justice Department when the thefts took place. He placed orders for the fajitas through the juvenile detention center where he worked, but intercepted the orders and then sold the goods on to his own customers. His scheme was discovered when he had to miss work one day and his colleagues received an 800-pound delivery of fajitas. This perhaps wouldn't have been unusual if the kitchen at the detention center served fajitas, which it did not. The Cameron County Assistant District Attorney Peter Gilman asked the judge to give the 53-year-old Escaramilla a 50-year sentence to send the message that theft by public servants is a serious matter. And it is. It is a very serious matter. I don't deny that. 50 years is insane. You have murderers serving a fraction of a fraction of that time. And for a situation like this, you give them some prison time, sure. You give them the conviction that carries the collateral consequences with it, sure. And you get restitution. Have the guy start paying back the fucking money. How's he going to pay it back serving 50 years in jail, making a dollar a day, doing whatever the fuck he's doing? It's so stupid. So that's in Cameron County. In Tarrant County... 
A reminder, as I said with ECU, being white has its perks. Uh, We got a case of two different stories here, both in the exact same county. I'm going to give you the black one first. We're going to give you the black version of the story. So a black female has been given five years active prison time because of the heinous crime of voting while she was on probation. From the story, it says, quote, If she had known it was illegal, Crystal Mason said she would have never cast a vote in the 2016 presidential election. The 43-year-old former tax preparer hadn't even planned on voting until her mother encouraged her to do it. She had only recently been released from federal prison for a 2012 tax fraud conviction in which she pleaded guilty to inflating returns for her clients. She was still on community supervision at the time of the election. But no one, including her probation officer, ever told her that being a felon on supervision meant she couldn't vote under Texas law. Now she's going back to prison for casting a ballot illegally for five years. So that is the black version of this election fraud story. Let me give you the white version of the election fraud story. Uh, Justice of the Peace Russ Casey pleaded guilty Monday to tampering with government records and resigned after an investigation showed he turned in fake signatures to secure a place on the March 6th primary ballot. On Monday, after pleading guilty to the state jail felony charge in state district court, uh, Casey was sentenced. The judge, who worked in northeast Tarrant County, was sentenced to five years of probation. So he will get to be out and about and enjoying his life. Being white has its perks. Out of Vermont and Bridgewater, police are still issuing school zone traffic tickets despite the fact the school closed three years ago. From the story, it says, quote, in 2017, deputies issued more tickets in Bridgewater than anywhere else in the state. The vast majority of these tickets were issued in a 25 mile an hour school zone, even though the Bridgewater Village School closed three years ago. Although Plymouth receives more money from traffic tickets, deputies issued more tickets in Bridgewater than anywhere else. If one could calculate ticket revenue per foot, this one-third of a mile long stretch might be the most lucrative piece of road in the entire state. Since 1983, more than 20 schools have closed across the state. Amy Gamble, traffic operations engineer for the Vermont Agency of Transportation, said that when schools close, the state does not reassess the speed limit in the now permanent school zones. Windsor County Sheriff Michael Chamberlain supports the 25-mile-an-hour school zone speed limit. There are no sidewalks, he said. It wouldn't take much for someone to go off and hit a child or hit a family. Now, not mentioned here is there's no reference as to whether or not children or family use this area. Now that there's no school, there's nothing for them to go to. Uh, Town Constable Colin Doyle would instead like to find other ways to slow speeding drivers. Doyle is 29 years old and moved back to Bridgewater from New York City a few years ago. I often joke around and say I'm on the mean streets of Bridgewater, he said. Doyle worries that Bridgewater's reputation as a speed trap dissuades visitors from spending money in the town. It's anti-advertising, he said. I really think it has hurt our economics. No shit. I'm sure it has too. So we give you a link to that story. That's in Vermont out of Virginia. We got two cases here. Uh, At Alludin County, Virginia State Police pulled over an NFL player and claimed that he was a gang-banging drug dealer because he happened to be a black guy in a nice car. Uh, From ESPN, 
says, quote, the Virginia State Police say it's reviewing claims made by new Washington Redskins receiver Paul Richardson Jr., who tweeted that a trooper asked whether he was in a gang and told him he thought he was a drug dealer after pulling him over Tuesday afternoon. Richardson, the former Seahawks wideout who signed with the Redskins last month, tweeted that he got pulled over in a toll lane, leading to questions from the trooper. So, quote, before asking my name, he asked me if I was in a gang. Then minutes later told me he thought I was a dealer. Richardson posted, what a welcome to the East Coast. Finished up with asking me how much the car cost me. I've had this car two weeks, and this amazing officer gave me a ticket for only having temporary registration. Mind you, I have up to two months in Virginia before needing to register it in Virginia. A spokesman for the Virginia State Police confirmed that Richardson, who was driving a Mercedes SUV, was stopped in Loudoun County, quote, because the vehicle did not have license plates displayed as required by Virginia law, and that he was cited, quote, for failing to have the vehicle properly registered. Out of Portsmouth, new body cam footage has been released showing a police officer shooting a burglary suspect in the back as he's trying to run away, contradicting earlier reports. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, a video showing a rookie cop shooting a black teenager in the back as the 18-year-old was running away seemed to contradict previous statements by the officer involved, who said on camera that the shooting victim had pointed a gun at the officer. On October 29th, Portsmouth, Virginia police officer Jeremy DeRocher responded to a burglary call and found DeAntris Ward allegedly burglarizing the home. The video begins with DeRocher's gun already drawn. As soon as he spots Ward, DeRocher begins opening fire. Apparently gifted with extrasensory perception, DeRocher yells, he has a gun, as he pursues Ward, shooting an additional three times. When Ward is felled by the gunshots and handcuffed by other officers who cannot find a gun, DeRocher continues to insist that the subject waved a gun. Ward can be heard saying, I can't breathe, to which a female officer responds, you'll be fine. Another female officer confiscates DeRocher's sidearm, telling him she had to do it. A second later, a male officer takes DeRocher's gun from the woman and gives DeRocher another gun, explaining he's got to have one. That's out of Virginia. In Washington, we've got a Bellevue case where an unnamed police officer has been arrested for domestic violence. From the story, it says, quote, a Bellevue police officer was arrested early Saturday morning after a report of a domestic violence assault. The officer was taken into custody for investigation. Subquote, it's a very unfortunate thing that occurred, Bellevue Police Assistant Chief Patrick Arpin said. A bad personal choice is the best way I'd put it. We want to get out in front of it. The officer is now on paid administrative leave during the investigation and is being held at King County Jail. The department is not disclosing the officer's identity at this time, but described him as 48 years old and a 16-year veteran of the force. Isn't that nice? You know, if you or I happen to get put on paid vacation as part of our criminal charges, our name, our mugshot, our entire criminal history, all that shit's out within the span of minutes. But when it's one of their own, all this information gets withheld and the media doesn't try to ferret it out. Uh, it's out of Bellevue in Seattle. We have good news. Don't let it be said. I don't report good news. This is actually like the third good news story in a week. It's impressive. Uh, so Seattle is moving to retroactively dismiss all misdemeanor weed convictions prior to legalization. 
Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Seattle City Attorney Pete Holmes filed a motion Friday asking the Seattle Municipal Court to vacate all convictions and dismiss all charges for misdemeanor marijuana possession that were prosecuted in a period before pot was legalized statewide. In a statement, Holmes called the motion one small step to right the injustices of a drug war that has primarily targeted people of color. So, quote, as we see marijuana sold in retail storefronts today, people who simply had a joint in their pocket a decade ago still have a red mark on their records. The motion argues the court should act because possessing a small amount of marijuana is no longer illegal in Washington. It states that such action would, sub quote, promote the interests of fairness and justice. This is this is radical. Like this is a radical thing to do. I think it's the right thing to do. It should be done. It should be done more often. But I can't think of any scenario where this has been done before. If I'm wrong, feel free to tweet me a correction. But I think this is the first time this has been done. Um, I, I vaguely remember there being some talk about one of the cities in California was thinking about it. But I think this is the first time actual motions have been filed to have it done. So kudos to Seattle. Out of Wisconsin, we've got some truly gutless prosecuting here. Uh, no charges are going to be filed against two killer cops who tased a mentally ill man 18 times while he was in the shower, uh, basically until he died. From the story, it says, quote, two West Milwaukee police officers who broke down a mentally ill man's door and tased him in the shower 18 times before he died will not be criminally charged. Milwaukee County District Attorney John Shisholm has decided. More than 30 minutes elapsed between the first time the officers deployed their tasers and the time Adam Trammell lost consciousness in the hallway of his apartment building. In between, Trammell suffered a black eye, a broken rib, and more than two dozen cuts and bruises to his body. On the officer's body camera footage, Trammell can be heard screaming in agony. He spent some of his last conscious moments vomiting profusely. Chisholm concluded that there was, quote, no basis to conclusively link the death to the officer's actions. Here's the thing. That's not the fucking standard for indicting somebody. But OK, story continues, quote, the officers, Michael Rolletter and Anthony Munoz, quote, responded to a medical emergency under complex circumstances that required them to attempt restraint. Uh, but Trammell, who was 22 and suffered from schizophrenia, did not exhibit any sign of needing medical attention until the officers had attempted to forcibly remove him from the shower. When they pulled aside the shower curtain, Trammell stood still and stared blankly at them. The body camera footage shows. This is fucking gutless. This is just utter gutless prosecutorial bullshit. Uh, so that's out of Wisconsin. That's actually all of the state by state criminal justice fuckery news. We do have one story out of Canada. Occasionally we cover things in other countries. And this is to give a shout out to the officer in Toronto. So there was a it wasn't a terrorist attack. Basically, this guy was what we call an incel involuntarily celibate. Uh, couldn't get laid, decided to take it out on people. So got in a van, ran over a bunch of women and killed them. Well, there are multiple video cameras plus uh, closed-circuit television surveillance footage of what happened. 
and the guy crashes the van after he's run over several people. This particular officer pulls up, gets out the car, draws his gun. You're expecting the guy's going to get shot dead. That's what you figure is going to happen because you listen to this podcast. You see how American police act. And instead, that doesn't happen. The guy eventually gets out of the van. He's got something in his hand that he's trying to pretend is a gun. The officer still doesn't shoot. Uh, officer's telling him to, to get on the ground. The guy's saying, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me in the head. He keeps gesturing to his back pocket to pretend like he's got a gun in his pocket that he's going to draw. And the officer doesn't shoot. And eventually he takes a step forward and you see the guy just kind of like lose it, drops whatever he has in his hand and gets down on the ground. It is, it is astonishing. I don't know what was going through the officer's mind. I don't know if he's got fucking ice in his veins, but it is astonishing. And frankly, it's fantastic. That's how more of these things should be done. We should not be in the old wild west just randomly executing people because we can. We have three branches of government for a reason. And you can tell how astonishing this conduct was because in the subsequent news reporting, Canadian papers are interviewing American police and American law professors who used to be police, and they're a fucking aghast. This is so outrageous to them. In one article I read, a, a former police officer says that the Toronto cop was derelict in his duties because he had a duty to execute the guy. Like, what the fuck? You know, I, I don't know Canada well. I know we have a few listeners to the podcast in Canada. I've only been to Canada once. It was to Toronto. Uh, I really enjoyed the Underground Mall. I thought that was pretty cool. And I remember it being ridiculously expensive, in part thanks to our government's rampant inflation, spending a shitload of money on every fucking thing under the sun makes it more expensive for us to go abroad because dollars aren't worth shit. Uh, But if that is the type of policing philosophy they have up there, Uh, that's, that's awesome. I mean, that's truly fantastic. I wish we could import some of that, even just a fraction of it. If the police killed a fraction of the people that they kill every year now would go a long way to transforming our justice system. So kudos to the officer. I don't have his name in my notes. Uh, I do. It's Ken Lamb. So Ken Lamb, if you're listening, Uh, That's a fantastic policing job. I hope you get a promotion and treat it like royalty because that was just truly, truly impressive. Uh, So, folks, that is going to conclude all of the criminal justice fuckery we have for this week. I managed to keep it to an hour and a half. Hallelujah. Uh, We will not have a law 140 because we are at an hour and a half. But hopefully I will uh, have it next week. We are going to talk about the constitutionality of mandatory minimums. As we are celebrating the one-year anniversary of Fiskamall, please leave us a rating or review on the Apple Podcast Store, Stitcher, wherever you happen to get your podcast. Tell more people about us. Uh, and as always, on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, thank you so much for listening. I hope all of you have a fantastic week, and I will talk to you next Monday. <laughs>